You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. We are in a series looking at God himself, and I gotta tell you, I feel very inadequate uh, to communicate this message. I've tried all week to talk to people I know and love and people I run into, and every time I have this conversation, I feel like I walk away failing to really communicate God. And then it dawned on me, we're trying to describe the indescribable. So if you're visiting with us today and you walk away uh, unclear about what is so powerful about today's text, well, duh, because you got a human being up here who's very broken in and of himself and doesn't have the right words. I don't know what else to say. So what I want to do before we jump into this message is just stop and pray and ask God to speak to us today. We want to invite him here. And here's the thing. I am guilty for what I'm about to say. Sometimes when people pray publicly, they, they're, they're talking to you and not to God. I don't know if you noticed that. I'm like, Lord, and one more thing I forgot to say in my sermon, God, just wanted to put this out there. You know, we don't actually say that, but we just do it. I don't want to do that right now. I, this is not about me. This is, a, this is about God. So let's Invite him into this place and into our hearts right now and just have a real conversation with God. Ready? Let's go. Father, you are awesome. And I don't even have words to describe how awesome you are, but we're gonna try. We're gonna, we're gonna give it our best shot, Father. And I just need you to come and show up in this place. And I'm asking you, Father, to use whatever words come out of my mouth. Illustrations, Lord, that I hadn't planned on using, but you have just for this service I pray that you'd bring that to mind and I would be willing to scrap whatever I thought was what needed to be said. And um, Lord, everything that's from me, I pray that everybody here would forget and everything that's from you, I pray that they would remember and receive. But God, aside from all of the delivery of a sermon, Father, I pray right here that you would come and fill this place with your glory. And um, Lord, I pray that we would meet you today and we would not be able to leave the same. And Lord, I, um, we love you. We're so thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever seen something so beautiful that it overwhelmed you? Anybody? Now, this would be a good time, men, to grab your wife's hand <laughs> and say, baby, you know, from the first time I saw you, and you just get back, you're like a fine wine or a moldy cheese. You just <laughs> pick your analogy. <laughs> But that'll actually fit into what I want to say today, and I think I may have forgot to say it last service. You always get the better end of the, the deal here. But I want to show you something. Let me show you this first picture. This was my wife, Rachel, and I. This was our view for 10 years driving into work. Now, I don't know how well you could see this screen. or It shows up a little bit better up there. Um, the, you ever heard the phrase in the song, Purple Mountain Majesty? This is the regular sunrise. Those two peaks are Long's Peak and Mount Meeker. And um, when the sun rises, and especially when they're snow-capped, a little bit like they are right there, uh, it is breathtaking. Now, this is not my photo. I stole that from somebody who's a much better photographer than I would be online. But that was our view, driving every day. That was our view. And I thought that was probably about as beautiful as it was ever going to get. And then a few years ago, as a part of my sabbatical, the church allowed me to go to Peru to vision a missionary, and I got to visit this place, Machu Picchu. And uh, the, the, the ruins alone were beautiful. I mean, they were amazing. But the ruins were just man-made coolness and all this weird stuff going on. But the mountains themselves, Andes Mountains, are like take the Rocky Mountains, raise them up, and then make them have babies with the Appalachians. So they're bigger, they're taller, they're rockier, and they're greener. Like, it's like the, the best of both, like smashed together. Truly, truly, truly breathtaking. But even still, there was one better. In fact, 
the day after this, after about an hour of sleep, I went and visited this place, and it's called Rainbow Mountain. That is real. The picture may have been brightened so that you could see the color of it. That is just minerals that actually are right there on the side of the mountain. This is in Peru. I think there's a Rainbow Mountain somewhere else in the world. It is unbelievable. You can see the tiny people there. You can see the picture of the tiny little people there. So this sits at around a little over 15,000 feet in the air. Long's Peak, the first picture sits at around 14,000 feet. You start at 9,000 feet, and then you walk four and a half miles um, up, or if you want to pay the money, you can ride a donkey. I'm not saying I don't recommend it, but I didn't do it. And, um, and then you walk four and a half miles back, but it's a, a little over a mile climb in altitude. So you start at 9,000 feet, you go to 15,000, and uh, it is grueling and exhausting, and they won't allow you to stay up there more than 45 minutes because if you're not acclimated to that kind of altitude, and you just stand there and you look at it, and you have this worship experience. And so I want to come back to my original question. Have you ever seen something so beautiful that it just overwhelmed you? Everybody's had that at some point, right? Do you know what's interesting about every single one of these experiences? And I know some of you are gonna disagree with me, and that's fine. What's unique about every single one of them is if you stare long enough, they get old. Some of you who are ocean people, not mountain people, I'm a mountain guy. I mean, I love the ocean, but give me a mountain behind it, I'm gonna climb the mountain every time. Some of you will say, well, I could just sit at the ocean all day long every day. And I would just say, I, I bet you couldn't. I, I know you think you could. And I know some of you would love to try and prove me wrong. Even right now, you're like, is he done yet? That's a great idea. But in, re in all reality, this is why many of you who are snowbirds, you go down to Florida, right? And you're like, just be, you're, you're in the, you go to the beach like every day, right? And then you go like three days a week. Then you go one day a week. Then you only go when family come or on special occasions. You just don't quite make it there. The mountains are the same way. We lived there 10 years. And my greatest regret is that I didn't go more. Because you just think, oh, I got more time. I got more time. I look at it every day. It's beautiful. I never, I mean, I always loved it. But you can't just sit there and stare at it and stare at it and stare at it and stare at it and stare at it. Because sooner or later you go, hey, cool, let's go see the next mountain. Hey, cool, let's go see the next ocean. And you ever notice this is true about so many things in life? And I'm gonna be silly for a minute, but I'm being serious. You ever buy an outfit and think, I need that outfit because that outfit, when they were in the factory making it, they didn't know it, but they were making it for me. Like it just, I make this look good. And then you put it on, you wear it, and everybody is like, wow, you look good. And then the next time you go to wear it, you're like, I don't look as good. And then the next time it looks a little less good. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have one drink? And it did something for you, but then a second drink, then a third drink, then a fourth drink. You ever buy a pair of shoes? You ever buy a car? You ever buy a house? See, life here on earth is filled with situations where things are good, but not good enough. Fulfilling, but not fulfilling enough. And there's a reason, and it actually comes out in today's text. So I want you to turn with me now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And uh, I'm just going to read four verses, and then we'll come back and unpack them. So if this doesn't make sense to you, hopefully by the end it will. And again, man, people write entire books, entire books on Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to give like 30 minutes to Isaiah chapter 6. So realize there's a lot I'm leaving behind, but there's also a lot I'll cover. And if I at all somewhat succeed today, then maybe your mind will, like mine did this week, multiple, multiple times. Here we go. I hope I bought you enough time. It'll be on the screen if you don't know how to use the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That looks awesome, doesn't it? And the problem with the word awesome is that everything is awesome. I saw the Lego movie. I know. <laughs> like everything is awesome. And so the word awesome doesn't mean anything anymore. Except for everything isn't awesome. One is awesome. And that's the point. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And the year that King Uzziah died. This is a critical to understanding what's happening in, in, in Isaiah 6. Uzziah was an extremely successful king. Uzziah brought wealth and prosperity upon the Israelites like they had not experienced in years. And now King Uzziah was dead. And the people were anxious because now that our king is gone, what will happen to us? So as the king goes, so as the nation goes. And this is true, I'm sure, in every nation in the world. Doesn't matter if you have kings or presidents or dictators or whatever it is. As goes that leader, so goes the nation. And the people were anxious. And so right here we learn off chapter six, verse one, Uzziah is dead. But even though Uzziah is dead, someone is still seated on the throne. See, this is critical for us to get. There's a nuance going on here in Uzziah as well. And I'm gonna set it up now, but we'll deal with it Later. The last, I think it's seven years of Uzziah's life are pretty miserable for Uzziah. See, as Uzziah was successful, he assumed his success had to do more with himself than with the blessing and the presence of God. And oh, by the way, we are just as guilty sometimes, aren't we? And Uzziah goes into the temple to seek and besiege the Lord. And we're not 100% sure why. Scholars land on different reasons, what might have been going on that led him to this place, but everybody agrees his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, the text actually tells you that if you go back and read, leads him to go into the temple, to go where he was, had no business going and try to offer a sacrifice that he was not allowed to, to offer. God had very specific roles, and unless God gave you more than one role, you weren't allowed to have more than one role. You may have noticed last week, Ezekiel was a priest by birth. He was a Levite. However, God called him to be a prophet because there was no temple around. Well, Uzziah was a king. He was not a priest. He was not allowed into this part of the temple. He was not allowed to offer the sacrifice he was trying to offer. And everybody around him starts trying to warn him. I know you're the king. I know you're the king, but you can't be here. You can't do this. And Uzziah wouldn't listen. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Uzziah gets struck with leprosy as a judgment from God. In some ways, it's a mercy because God could have struck him dead like other people in the Old Testament who tried to offer strange fire worship, who tried to offer impure and unholy practices to God. And boom, they just died right there. But God was merciful to Uzziah. And he, they usher him out like, you gotta go, you gotta go. And he knows immediately something is wrong. God is humbling Uzziah. And he spends the last, I think it's seven years, like eight years of his life in seclusion, hiding from the people because if you had leprosy in that day, in, in Hebrew, the word leprosy is kind of a junk drawer word. It covers a number of skin diseases. Today, when we call leprosy, leprosy, we tend to mean something called Hansen's disease. It may have been that. It may have been something else. It doesn't really matter. The point was he was now marked as, with, a, with a consequence for his choices and his son, I believe it's Jotham, now has to lead. And Jotham is young and exp inexperienced and really doesn't know what to do. And the king has now died, and everybody is scared. They've been living under this other king's leadership, but at least dad was around and could maybe coach a little, and now dad is gone, and now what? And God says to Isaiah, the real king is still seated on his throne. But then notice the thing about this king, 
The train of his robe fills the temple. Now, when you think train, don't think of like uh, your wedding or your friend's wedding that had this really long train and it took like the entire bridal party to move it around, you know what I mean? To get it like in place every time they turn or whatever. Don't even necessarily think in mind uh, in maybe a king you've seen in some movie or something who had a long purple flowing robe. The word here for train is one of the words used to describe the priestly garment and it has to do with this little edge, if you will, of the priestly garment that just kind of sticks out and drags along the ground. It's got some things hanging off of it. It's an important piece. It's probably a visual image and not an accident that Isaiah picked this word to describe it. But the point is, this tiny little thing, the entire temple is filled with the glory of God because of this tiny little piece of what God is wearing, not even God himself. He's saying something. How big is this temple? Well, this is an important thing to get. We know roughly about the size of the temple. This is the temple before the second temple that's later rebuilt by uh, Nehemiah and that kind of thing. This is before all that. This temple reflected something powerful and something important, except for this isn't that temple. This isn't the earthly temple. This is a heavenly temple. And it becomes clear from what we see throughout the images that are about to come that we're gonna talk about. Isaiah is not in the earthly temple. He's in the heavenly temple. How big is the heavenly temple? massive. The end of Ezekiel describes it a little bit. Revelation gives us a view of it. We don't even know if those things are meant to be literal or just metaphoric, and I don't even have time to unpack all that. The point of all these things is God, even just a little bit of a garment of God, is massive, massive, big enough to fill this entire temple. God is big. He's really big. He's awesome. Look at verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. And before we get to what they were calling, let's just stop here. The word seraphim, if I'm not mistaken, this is the only place that it's used in the entire Bible. Leaves many people to think that seraphim and what we looked at last week in Ezekiel, cherubim, are actually the same kind of category of angelic being. The truth is, I don't know, and I don't really care. It's not my focus for today. It is a fascinating conversation, just not relevant for today. However, these are described with six wings. Is this literal? Are there literal creatures before God that have six wings and do this? I don't know. I think yes. I don't know, but there's a relevance to the six wings. What's the relevance? In everybody that I read, everybody I studied, that's about six to eight different resources, they're all consistently saying the same thing. So with two wings, notice that they're covering, we're gonna start at the bottom and work our way up. They're, they're covering their feet. Why are they covering their feet? Because the feet are an unclean thing. Notice even Jesus in the New Testament takes off his outer garment, wraps it around his waist, gets down on his knees, and washes the disciples' feet. And Peter looks at him and says, no, 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 no. I, no, I, I am unworthy to have you wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me do this for you, then you're not even fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now go and do this for each other. Feet were unclean. Apparently, even angelic feet. Not unclean in the sense that our feet are unclean. The whole point is, whatever the most unattractive or uncleanness part of an angel would be, it's a visual to illustrate for you that these angels and the presence of this king seated on his throne understand that even they are unworthy of his presence. When they sing, take a look at the very next thing and then we'll jump back. 
When they sing in verse three, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The phrase, holy, 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 the reason it's repeated is they don't quite have the language skills that we have. They have different words in English than they had in Hebrew. And if they wanted to make a point of something, they would double it. If they really want to make a point of something, they would triple it. And I think there's a point to that because it points us to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the whole point then, you could read that it says, the most holiest of all holy is the Lord Almighty. There is truly none like him. The word holy is the word kadosh in Hebrew. It literally means set apart or different from. There is nothing and no one, no king on any throne, anywhere in the history of the world, in the spiritual world or the physical world or any world to ever come that is at all like him. And these angels now covering their feet in his presence because they realize they are created beings. And the Bible tells us that while humans are a little lower than the angels, we read this in Hebrews, and yet even they in his presence know they are nowhere near him. And with two wings, they cover their face. A couple weeks ago, I was working through Ezekiel, which we talked about last week. And uh, I reached out to my Old Testament professor and I was like, all right, I, normally I'd spend like a year studying this and I don't have that much time, so I'm, I'm trying to cram in a lot of study in a short amount of space. Help me understand what's happening in Ezekiel. And he said many things. One of the things he said that was just blew my mind and I thought, oh, I'll have to get to that later. And then I came here and I went, oh no, he's right. I should assume my professor is probably smarter than me, but whatever. The student's supposed to surpass the master, right? I'm working on it. Anyway, he said to me, Matt, do you notice that in the presence of God, even the angels don't have a complete uh, experience of him. And I wrote back, I went, I don't even know what that means. Help me out here. And he said, notice whenever you see angels in the presence of God, they're covering their face. And then I get to here again and I go, they're covering their face. Why are they covering their face? Perhaps it has to do with this word Glory. Glory is literally the Hebrew word kabod. It means, you ready? Glorious. Glory. Honorable. Aren't you glad I just blew your mind? Do you know what the word glory means? It means glory. That's deep. Pastor, man, you just share nuggets with us. It just, whoo. So glad you learned to study the Bible. But the word glory comes from the word kabed, or kabad, and that word literally means to be heavy or weighty or burdensome. There's a, there's a lady, uh, she recently wrote a book and I heard an interview with her, and she decided to take on the word glory and study it throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. Kabod here, and I think it's the word doxa in Greek, and she just studied it from beginning to end. And what you find when you study the word glory is glory means many things. Even in our culture, the word glory can be many things. You could win a championship and we'd say, oh, glorious, they won, or you know, they had the glory of winning and succeeding after all that hard work or whatever it is. We also talk about glory in different ways. Um, we talk about glory in terms of power or majesty or kingliship or something like that. We even talk about seeing a person 
person in all of their glory. And a lot of times we mean something good by that, and sometimes we can mean something negative by that. But that's kind of the point. The word itself has many, many meanings and many implications. We don't even have time to dig into all that. But this word has a root to it, and the root has to do with the weightiness or the heaviness or the burdensomeness of God. And now Isaiah is in this place, and he's in a heavenly temple, not an earthly one. This thing was massive. He sees a throne. He sees a king sitting on his throne, and just a little piece of his garment fills the entire temple with the weight of God. What would happen if you had to feel the weight of God? Perhaps a better question to ask is this. What will you do in the presence of this kind of power and glory? I mean, if you were to be in this moment, what would happen to you? The word seraphim comes from the Hebrew word seraph, which means fiery ones. There's this idea about these angelic beings that are flying above God, leading the entire temple in worship. There's this concept that they are like, which I find fascinating, by the way, that the very first words of creation, God said, let there be light, and out of him flew light, flew power, flew might, and all of a sudden things start getting created and organized and arranged just as he had desired. And these angels sitting near him are light angels, fire angels. There's a whole lot more to say on that subject I don't have time for. There's some great content out there. If you're curious, I'll send it to you. But the point, though, is they are covering their faces. These angels of light, these angels of beauty, of, of, of whatever it is, flame or fire, they're in the presence of God, and they're covering their faces. Why are they covering their faces? And the reason they're covering their faces, they can't look upon him. They can't see him. They can't gaze upon him. Even they, in God's presence, shield themselves and shy themselves from being able to gaze upon him. Why? Because the weight of God's glory is crushing. In fact, in Exodus, we looked at two weeks ago, God meeting with Moses and giving him the Ten Commandments. Well, it says that God spoke to Moses face to face. And as God was speaking to Moses face to face, Moses gets emboldened a little bit. He says, God, I want to see you. Show me you. And Moses is like, or God's like, Moses, you can't handle the truth. And somebody in Hollywood went and wrote it down like, oh, that's good. We're going to Jack Nicholson say that. But the point is, God literally takes Moses, puts him in a cleft of a rock, so kind of puts him in a, in, a, in a hole area, like think of a U-shape, and then he covers him with his hand, and then it says that God passed by in front of Moses, says his own name, Yahweh says his own name, walks by him, and then, which by the way, how do you cover somebody when you're well past them? He's God. You don't need to get into these questions because the whole point of what we're being described is if you take this too literally, the analogy breaks down just a little bit. The point is God covered him and shielded him so that he wouldn't even feel the weight of God's glory. And the way the Hebrew speaks is after God had moved by, the, the entails, the, the, the little bit of, of glory left, when it was safe for Moses, God removes his hand and says, Moses able, we're told the back of him, but the back of him gives the impression that he's got a human form and he doesn't have a human form it's the glory of God and you need to think of it like take a match and you light a match and you, and you go like this and you put it out and then the smoke just kind of starts to evaporate and disseminate out into the air that's kind of like what Moses experienced when there was just a tiny bit of glory left there in that moment Moses saw it and was overwhelmed by it and it says his whole face started to shine bright like light he comes down the mountain his face shines he's like a walking flashlight 
And there's all these New Testament things and stuff I don't have time to unpack. The point is, God looks at him and says, if I were to bring my glory to bear in this moment, there's nothing and no one who could stand under the weight of it. It would crush you, Moses. And I love you too much for that. What do you think you would try to do under the weight of God's glory and power? As I was writing this message this week, the song that came to mind was the song I can only imagine. You maybe have never heard the song, but the chorus goes like this. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah, or will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. You're singing it, aren't you, in your head right now? It's a phenomenal, phenomenal song because it reminds us how awesome God is. In my younger years when I was arrogant and prideful, not that I don't ever struggle with that today, but I I often thought, you know what, God? When I get to heaven, I got some questions and you need to give me some answers. And I get it, you're not gonna give them to me now, but when I get there, you better answer some things. And then I read texts like this and I go, it can wait. We got eternity, maybe a couple million years from now we'll get to it. But here's the part I forgot to say last service and I hope I made it clear enough by the power of the spirit, maybe it was clear. We're gonna look at Revelation. I can't remember if it's next week or the week after. We're gonna look at Revelation and John's vision of heaven. And he adds, these angels who are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He adds, who was and is and is to come. And they sing it over and over and over for all of eternity. Do you know why? Because unlike looking at the mountains, it never gets old to them. You could stare at God for eternity and you're not gonna get bored. You're never gonna look at him like you do your spouse or your puppy or your house and think, I wish I had a new one. I hope you'd never say that about your spouse. That didn't come out right. I meant puppy. I love you, honey. It's not what I meant. I came out wrong. But you will be in his presence, and it'll never get old because he's that glorious. What does Isaiah do? Isaiah 6 5. Woe to me, I cried. He literally just says it out loud I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you get what he's saying? Isaiah, in this moment, realizes, okay, Uzziah went into the temple, into the part of the temple he didn't belong, and he just ran right in there, and he wasn't allowed in there. He tried to do something he wasn't supposed to do, and God struck him out of mercy. God struck him with leprosy. But I'm here not in the earthly temple. I'm here in the heavenly temple. I'm undone. How could I possibly stand under the weight of this? And he's realizing how beautiful and powerful and magnificent God is. And he's like, woe to me. And this guy's a prophet. 
He's a prophet. He's supposed to use his mouth to speak the words of God. He's like, how could I dare open my mouth? But there's a part of him that wants to draw into the worship of the angels. But I want to sing. But I don't dare open my mouth in the presence of this. This is unlike anything I've ever experienced. This is like anything I've ever seen or, or even heard about. It is truly awesome. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a bunch of unclean lipped people. What do I do? Why is it a big deal that Isaiah has seen God? Well, I touched on it already, but let me read part of it to you. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God literally told Moses, this is the chapter and the verse, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. No one. This is why the angels are hiding their face. Do you see it? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, though. This blew my mind this week. Here we go. Paul says this. God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. I don't know how many times I've read, that's like what we would call a doxology. It's a powerful summary statement of what's going on and Paul's like, man, I just gotta get this out there. God is awesome. But did you get what he said? God sits in unapproachable light and no one can look upon him. That's how awesome he is. How do you describe the one who is indescribable? He's awesome. Not good enough, not big enough. He's in unapproachable light. Does God have a form? Throughout the Bible, when we see God described, he doesn't have a form. He's a bright light of some sort. So how in the world then do you describe him? Does he have legs and arms and hands and hair and ears? I should think not. He is an unapproachable light. But even if so, I wouldn't know because no one has seen him. And that blew my mind. I just started going, I don't know what to do with you right now, God. I literally, after reading that, studying that, I came in here. I literally sat right over here. I just started, started sitting under the weight of God, like the, just, just processing all this, going, I, I don't, I've never, I've read my Bible. I don't know how this had never dawned on me before. And the weight of God just began to feel the presence of God, the weight of God, and I just went, God, I, you are far more awesome than I can even now comprehend, than I can even wrap my head around. God, somehow I gotta get up on stage and try to communicate this. And I just started crying. And I'm sure if somebody had walked in here that had been like, Matt, you okay? You need to see a counselor? You all right? You need to call your wife? Can you drive? Like, have you been drinking? Like, did you get into the communion juice? Just kidding, it's grape juice. Um, and I'm making a joke because I don't know how to find the right words. Because the other thing that I read right before that is I read John 1, 18. John says this, no one has ever seen God but the one and only God who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father has made him known. No one has ever seen God except Jesus and he came and made him known. John follows that up. He actually says it many times but in John chapter six, verses 46, John says, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. This is why I believe Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews, the angels long to look into these things. 
They understand Jesus has come. They understand Jesus has made the Father known to us. And they don't fully know or fully understand it themselves. And they long to look into it. That's why when the baby's born, these angels show up of light in a dark sky or whatever it is on the ground. And they're holding hands and singing songs and clapping and going, he's here, he's here. If you had any idea, if you had any idea, he sits in unapproachable light and he's come among you. He's here. He's here. And I'm sitting there thinking about all this on a process and my brain's like trying to wrap his head, tiny little map brain, trust me, it's not impressive. And I'm trying to wrap it around infinite God and I'm like, I couldn't handle it. And I, as I'm crying, all of a sudden, I started laughing and I went, why am I crying? Why am I laughing? I literally don't know. And as I'm thinking through this stuff, what hit me was this. I know him. I literally know him. Like I know Jesus. And Jesus knows the Father, and he's come to make the Father known. And I know him, and he's my friend. He's my friend. He's my Savior. He's my God. He loves me. He loves me. Like, I don't have to be crushed. I don't have to be undone. I don't have to go, woe is me. He knows me. I don't even know what to clap for right now. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6. Then one of these light creatures, the seraphim, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Let's just stop there for a minute because I go, holy cow, that's a sermon right there. Why does it matter? By the, uh, the whole thing he took, this coal, the live coal, it's actually in the Hebrew, it says live coal. The whole idea is it's hot and it's burning. We looked two weeks ago that God is a consuming fire. And the thing I said about a consuming fire is interesting. To consume something is like lunch. Like in an hour or so, I'm gonna go eat lunch, I'm gonna consume it. I'm gonna eat it all the way, it's gonna be gone. But you can also do something with fire. You can consume something, but it doesn't get destroyed. The same fire that can destroy in judgment is the same fire that can purify. And there's no shortage of passages that tell us that God is a purifying fire also. And if you take a metal from the earth and you stick it in something, they put the heat in there, they turn it up, and it separates the dross from the metal, the precious beauty. Notice when we get to Revelation, everything in heaven is made of beautiful, pure gold. Not literally everything, but many things. Now, is that literal? Is it metaphoric? The point is, all the impurities have been removed in the presence of a holy, 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 kadosh, 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 God. God longs for us to be there to worship him, but he's got to burn away some stuff. So he takes a live coal from the altar. The altar is where we would have offered a sacrifice. Now we're told that the human temple reflected things of a heavenly sort. So this live coal on the altar is where they would have offered animal sacrifices that would have the blood poured out and the body would have removed the sin and the guilt of the people. And the further you got in the temple, the different kinds of sacrifices and things that are offered. And if we're sitting in the Holy of Holies, oh man, I wish I had more time. If we're sitting in the Holy of Holies where God is said to have dwelt and he sat on the mercy seat, the judgment seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant of God and he sat there and only one time a year could the high priest go into the Holy of Holies and they tie a rope around his foot in case he went in and he wasn't right with God and he died in there. You can't leave a dead body in there for a year. Not only would it be bad, it would desecrate the entire thing and the Israelites would have been in trouble. So if he sins and God strikes him dead, at least they can yank the dead body out and go from there. This is all relevant to what's happening in Isaiah. Because Isaiah's in this moment, he's like, if Uzziah got leprosy, 
If some other people got struck dead, I'm done. I'm, I'm over. I got no hope. And notice, with the last two set of wings, the seraphim fly to take a live coal and touch it to Isaiah's lips. Verse seven, with it he touched my mouth and said, see this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When did God atone for our sins? Through the name of Jesus Christ. To atone means to make one again. God removed our sin and made us one with him again through Jesus Christ. That's why when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, and the whole earth shook. And the temple was, veil was torn in two from not bottom to top, from top to bottom, because God was tearing it open. And he's saying, now, instead of only one man and only once a year and after lots of sacrifice and consecration, being able to come into my presence, now the door is open. And anybody who wants to come, come, come. Climb up in your father's lap. Let him wrap his arms around you and say, I love you, my son. I love you, my daughter. I know him. I know him. His name is Jesus. And perhaps the hardest part of all of it is the next few verses in Isaiah 6. God says, who's gonna go? I'm looking for someone to go. We see this throughout the Old Testament that God has a heavenly court and he leads through heavenly beings in the spiritual world, and he leads through humans in the earthly world. That's what's going on in the garden. God was making Adam and Eve and saying, rule and subdue my creation. He's leading through us. And he looks to the heavenly court and says, I need someone to go. Who's gonna go? And Isaiah is so caught up in the moment. He goes, oh, me, me, send me. I, I almost pictured, didn't say this, I'm making everything from here on out is Matt Nickerson, so I hope you forget it. I almost picture this moment where God's looking around at the angels and, and Isaiah goes, me, here I am, send me. And he's so caught up in the worship, he just can't help it. And God goes, where did that come from? Now, I know that didn't happen. But the whole idea is Isaiah is out of place. This is not his place. This is God's place. But what would you do in God's presence if you were given the chance? Would you weep? Would you realize just how sinful you are? Would you realize just how small you are in the presence of this being? Or would you let Jesus wash you clean and give you a purpose? It's exactly what happened to Isaiah. But you're like, but Matt, why is all this talk about Jesus? I gotta read you something from John chapter 12. Look at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and then John quotes Isaiah chapter six. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. 
Isaiah 6, God tells Isaiah, okay, you're gonna go. You're gonna be my messenger, but know this, Isaiah, they aren't gonna listen to you because they love their houses and their beaches and their mountains and their cars and their women and their men and their clothes and their shoes more than they love me. God warned Israel, when you come into the land that I'm giving you, you're coming as slaves, you're coming with nothing. You've got nothing. And I'm taking you to a land, land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful land. And I'm gonna provide for you, I'm gonna give you a lot, but be careful because when you come to this land, you may be tempted to love the stuff that I'm giving you more than you love me. And it's happened. And because Uzziah was so successful, Israel trusts in their earthly stuff and not of their heavenly stuff. And God is saying, Isaiah, go haul them back to me. But I'm just telling you now, they won't listen. And in Jesus' day, they still didn't listen. And I wonder if in our day, will we yet listen? But notice this, and this one, I had like five times this week, I went, God, you gotta stop, I can't take anymore. But don't really stop, I want more. And then it says in John chapter 12, verse 41, and Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. What? So when Isaiah's in the temple, he didn't look upon God in unapproachable light. Who did he look at? Say the name, please say the name. Jesus. Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. Do you see it? No one has seen the Father but Jesus, and he makes him known to us. Isaiah, in his vision, he looks up, and he's undone, but he's not looking at God in unapproachable light. Who's he looking at? Jesus. And he's trying to tell us about Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and he's trying to tell us about the Father. And many of us harden our hearts and not listen. So I guess I just want to ask you this question. What will you do in the presence of this kind of power and glory? Because all of us have a decision to make right now. Some of you came in today, you didn't know you were going to meet God, but God intended to meet you. He's probably been chasing you and pursuing you for a long time. All these things are aligning in your life. And right now, God is saying, I want you to give your life to me right now just like this young lady did earlier in the service that got baptized. It's a here I am, send me moment. Listen, if that's you, we're ready to talk to you about who God is and what he wants to do with your life. All you need to do is come down and talk to us. We have people wearing connect shirts, you come to them and say help. That's it. But for the rest of us, listen, if the Father is speaking to you right now, you need only to obey whatever he's telling you to do. If In God's presence right now, you feel like there's sin in your life that you would need to fall down and repent of, you would be undone, then do it. In one minute, when I'm done talking, I'm gonna pray, when I'm done praying, we're gonna take communion. You're gonna eat and drink the atonement of God. This is the body and the blood of Jesus. We represent it here and say, eat this. And remember, Jesus died on the cross. He's the sacrifice. He tore the veil in two. He opened up the door. Come to him. Let him atone for the sin so that you can look at him and say, now here I am, send me. If you need to do business with God, do it. But don't leave here feeling the heaviness of the glory of God. Leave here knowing you're the friend of Jesus and he loves you and he wants to do something with you. But don't just go about normal life as if none of this happened. Whatever it is he wants to do in you, open up your heart, say, here I am, Father, send me. You start praying that prayer, he's gonna ruin you, I promise. He's gonna ruin you in so many great ways. You'll find communion on the tables. Bring your offerings to the Lord, just say thank you. I didn't say your offering boxes, I said communion, but it's all the same. I wanna close with this. 
Philippians chapter two, Paul praises Jesus for being humble and coming and walking among us and taking on flesh. And I just wanna pray this prayer as scripture over you and then I'm just gonna say amen and you take communion and do your business with God. Here we go, let's pray. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, may it be true of us on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.